Welcome. I'm Gretchen Keesteidel, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this 10-part series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practice, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. Hi, my name is Heather Templeton-Dill, and I'm the president of the John Templeton Foundation. And I believe it is possible to cultivate the soul while doing work or engaging in conversation. We are joined by Heather Templeton-Dill. Heather's the president of John Templeton Foundation, which was founded in 1987 by her grandfather, the late Sir John Templeton. He was a financial investment wizard and pioneer, as well as a leading philanthropist and seeker. The foundation's mission reflects his deep spiritual curiosity and intellectual humility, and serves as a philanthropic catalyst for discoveries relating to the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. The foundation has distributed $1.8 billion to research and programs in 195 countries to date. When Heather was just a university student, she was first invited to serve as a trustee of the foundation and then succeeded her father as president in 2015. Her full bio is on our podcast website. Heather, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have a chance to speak with you today. So Heather, you grew up in a family that made significant philanthropic commitments. Your grandfather created the Templeton Prize in 1972. It's one of the largest individual awards for people who harness science to explore the deepest questions of the universe and mankind's place within it. Can you tell us a story from your childhood of when you first became aware of the power of money to do good? I actually don't have a story from my childhood that stands out in a profound way. I'd like to actually share a story from much later in life. In fact, the story is from when I was almost an adult. My parents raised me to appreciate the value of money. They encouraged me to create budgets on an annual basis and to live according to those budgets. And I was so good at living according to the budget I had that when I lent money to somebody or when I bought something for somebody that wasn't a gift, I expected to be paid back. And I remember going out with a friend and she bought me, I don't know, I can't remember whether it was a meal or a soda. And I said, well, when we get back to where we're staying, I'll pay you back. And she said, why would you do that? That's the silliest thing. I've got this. I'll pay for you. And I'm embarrassed to admit how old I was at the time, even though I well remember how old I was. That moment, however, really taught me the joy of generosity, which is something my parents embodied. It is something that my grandfather embodied. And since that time, I joyously, happily pay for friends. I don't expect anything in return. If I want to buy a big gift for somebody because I know they will love it, I will do that. So it's a silly story, I think, but it was actually quite transformational. And I still remember that friend. I'm still in touch with her. That's when I learned about the power of money to really have a positive impact. It's powerful for the individual, the giver, as well as the receiver. 
So you now serve as president of the John Templeton Foundation, which is dedicated to harnessing science towards these deepest big questions. What was one of the first big questions that you remember contemplating that has inspired your own personal journey? One of the big questions I remember was from college when I was reflecting on whether education is the key to success. So I studied public policy, among a number of other things, in college because I wanted to help eradicate poverty in the United States, at least. And I thought the best way to eradicate poverty was to ensure that every child had the best education. And the way to ensure that every child had the best education was to enact policies and regulations that would provide a path. I had an experience that taught me maybe policy rules and regulations aren't the way to go about that. And I think I discovered through that process that education is a piece of the key to success. But there's actually an ecology that surrounds each one of us. And in order for people to be successful, they need a great education, but they also need a family network, whatever that family network looks like that supports them. They need institutions. It could be religious institutions or community organizations. And then they need their local community to surround them and provide that support, even a safety net if that's needed. But you need all of those things working together. So is education the key to success? It's a piece of it, but it's certainly not the only piece. Can you tell us more about that experience that led you to that wisdom? Sure, absolutely. So I had the opportunity to serve as a student intern in the United States Senate, working for a senator, six-week experience. And in those six weeks, I realized that one could work for many years on the perfect piece of legislation. And then it comes to a vote, and it might fail. And that, unfortunately, we need public policymakers and public servants. But I realized through that experience that the best way I could impact individual lives was to be on the front line. And that experience inspired me to become a teacher. That's what I did after college. I taught high school history, government, economics, and non-Western world cultures. Wow, beautiful. How did you come to find that drive to eradicate poverty and be engaged on the front lines of education in the first place? Well, the concern for the welfare of others really emerged from my parents. So my parents were both pediatric physicians, and the way in which they lived out that career was a total commitment to their patients. And they served at a hospital located in the city of Philadelphia. So they had a variety of different patients from many different socioeconomic backgrounds, as well as demographic backgrounds. And they served every patient equally to the best of their ability. When they had time to be with us, I had just one younger sister, they engaged us in active social activity service projects. And one of them was around the Christmas holiday, the end of the year, where we would adopt a family in a local sort of urban environment. And they would send us their Christmas list. We would go shopping with my mother and buy whatever specific jacket they wanted, you know, the pink size eight jacket. And then we would go to the grocery store with my father and buy them a big Christmas dinner and all the fixings. And then we would deliver it to them directly. And because we went into their homes and in each case, we didn't just drop off what we had. They sat us down. They wanted the family wanted to talk to us. They wanted to express their gratitude. So I realized what I have and what others lack. And I think that drove my interest in wanting to provide for others what I had been blessed with just because of where I was born. 
In addition, I went to the University of Notre Dame for undergrad, and they have a strong emphasis on social service and serving the local community as well as the community beyond northern Indiana. So that was very influential in opening my eyes to poverty and the need to address it. With respect to education, I think teaching is in my blood. I mean, I can remember as a little girl, I had a classroom full of dolls and they all had their own notebook and I can tell you exactly where it was in my house, but it's not surprising to me that I ended up becoming a teacher. So I just somehow found a way to connect those two themes in college. Beautiful. What meaningful experiences. I'd love to hear too about your personal spiritual journey. What has inspired it at the earliest moments and what has been the most transformative practice that has served you or was responsible for your deepest transformative moments? Well, I was raised in a Christian home, and I am still a Christian today. My dad always liked to say that he had a Presbyterian father, an Episcopalian mother. He went to a Quaker school, and he married a Catholic. So even in the midst of Christianity, we had a great deal of exposure in our own home. And one of my early memories was when my maternal grandfather passed away. My mother's Italian, so we called this man Nono, and he had a stroke. Mom had to rush off to Italy to be with him. I don't think she made it before he actually passed away. I was six years old. That evening, my father took my sister and me to the local Catholic church. We weren't Catholics, but we went to the local Catholic church to light a candle in memory of my grandfather. And I remember it was fun to light the candle. I remember the flickering lights, but I also remember the somber and holy atmosphere. And it was different than what my own particular Christian faith tradition practiced. I think that experience helped me be open throughout my life to the various ways that people practice religious and spiritual beliefs or live out their religious and spiritual beliefs. And I've retained that throughout my life as well. I've always been a committed Christian. But even at Notre Dame, again, a Catholic institution, I'm not Catholic. I had the opportunity to take classes in world religions. I had the opportunity to teach about world religions in a Christian school specifically. So all of that has really given me appreciation for the many manifestations of religious and spiritual belief and practice. Do you have a practice of your own that has been instrumental in your own evolution? Yes, I would point to the practice of prayer, which is part of many faith traditions. I would say that at this stage in my career, my mind feels very busy when I try to pray. But throughout my life, prayer has been a source of comfort. At moments of trial and frustration and uncertainty, so I can remember being in seventh grade, for example, and that's just a very difficult time in anyone's life and feeling the burn of friendships lost and unkind comments made and praying and feeling like there was a God who existed and cared about where I was at that moment. I can remember praying about my first job. I had a vision of one kind of school where I was going to teach and I felt like through prayer, I was led to teach at another school and then, you know, throughout my life, as I have faced challenges, prayer has been a resource for me. So has that inner work influenced or informed your approach to philanthropy and your leadership at the John Templeton Foundation? That's a really great question. I once had somebody ask me whether 
I, or whether we at the John Templeton Foundation, pray over our grant decisions. And I was really surprised by that because the answer, at least for me, was no. I later talked to a colleague who said, actually, they do sometimes pray over grant decisions because they realize that every decision we make will impact somebody. It will be the difference between somebody receiving that grant that will help them get tenure or somebody getting turned down and having another discouraging moment in their life. So I really appreciate that perspective. I think for me, prayer helps me remember that how I treat people matters and how I lead matters. And I can get frustrated just like anybody else can, I hope (laughs) at least. And I can face very challenging situations. I have to make hard decisions. I have to make choices where I don't know what the outcome will be. That is where I really rely on prayer to help me through those moments. I should say, however, that Life is very busy for me right now. My husband and I have four children. We both have careers that we're pursuing. And I think that even in my daily work, so the act of writing an email or the act of interacting with someone or when I'm not at work and I am talking to one of my children, I'm looking up from my computer to talk to one of them. Those are, that can be a very prayerful act in a way as well. So I try to live into each moment. That's a beautiful invitation for each of us to start treating those single, simple day-to-day moments with a much greater reverence and and reflection. Yeah, sometimes that's all I can do, I feel like. (laughs) (laughs) So I would like to go deeper into this intersection of the deep inner work and inner world and outer impact from the depth of study that the John Templeton Foundation and your grantees are investing in understanding spirituality and human flourishing. How would you explain the relationship between our inner spiritual world and how we live and contribute towards a better outer world? And what does science have to contribute to this understanding? Thank you for that question. I actually want to reflect on the winner of the 2021 Templeton Prize, Dr. Jane Goodall because she writes about this in her autobiography, Reason for Hope, which I highly commend to anyone who's listening. So I'm going to use her ideas. It really reflects the way we think about it at the John Templeton Foundation. But she likens science and faith to windows on reality through which we look to understand the world around us. And I actually want to use a little phrase from her book because she says, science offers one window polished by a succession of brilliant minds. And I love that because that's the scientific enterprise. You learn something, you think you know it, but then something comes along that makes you question what you know and you have to continue your exploration. But then there are other windows which offer insight from our hearts and from our souls. And those are the windows that the founders of the world's faith traditions and other spiritual leaders have found meaning and purpose. So when I think about the intersection between one's inner spiritual life and how they live in the world and what science has to contribute to it. It's sort of like a house with many windows and you need all of the windows to get a fuller picture of reality. Beautiful analogy. So can you tell us about the priorities, the current priorities of the John Templeton Foundation and what's exciting you most about what you're exploring around these big questions and the windows that you're looking through? (laughs) That's right. I'm happy to say something about that. Uh, We are doing some great work at the John Templeton Foundation, and I'm also 
really excited about the fact that we are doing more than we ever had previously to shine a light on some of that work and to bring recognition to our grantees. So I'll just highlight a few of the priorities or strategies that we're pursuing. We're also aspiring to be more global. We are based in the United States, and so we have one initiative called Islam Science and Society. And it's a relatively small piece of all the work that we're doing, but it's growing. And our aspiration there is to support Muslim scholars all around the world, so Muslim scholars in the West, as well as Muslim scholars who are located in other countries, to reflect on science and the relationship between science and Islam, as well as to shore up the Muslim tradition and the Muslim intellectual tradition so that it can really reflect and interact with the many issues that the world faces today. So that's one area that we are, that I'm personally excited about. Another is that we are funding researchers who are investigating love. And love is something that you might think you can't study scientifically, but we believe you can study it through various scientific methodologies. So we are funding scholars who are trying to develop a robust definition of love. So that would be sort of the theology and philosophy window that they're looking through. And we are funding scholars who are trying to develop measurements of love. How do we know where love exists? How can we understand the different kinds of love and where they interact Our hope with that kind of work is that a better understanding of love would help us create interventions or support people who are struggling with love in various capacities. So that's another exciting area. And does that research focus on any one age range or kinds of relationships? I'm fascinated with what becomes that container for looking at the existence and expression of love. So we are open to funding a whole variety of different kinds of projects. And at the moment, we aren't focused on a particular time in life. We have funded research on sort of love relationships between people who are in a couple relationship and understanding that there's different components of love, romantic love, compassionate love, attachment love, and how do they interact. So those who are in a one-on-one committed relationship that's part of the individuals we're studying. A lot of this is research in psychology, and so the subjects are university students, and that's a starting point from which you can then create more real-world scenarios to investigate love. But we're open to researching across the lifespan as well as different kinds of relationships, parental, romantic, friendship, and other kinds of relationships. Wow. I look forward to following what emerges from that research. Now, I'm curious about your own experience. You were invited to join the board of the John Templeton Foundation when you were still a university student. And I'd love to know what that was like and also how you see philanthropy changing as the next generation takes a more active role in its leadership. It was a great privilege for me to join the board of trustees of the John Templeton Foundation at the age of 18. I had no idea, however, what it means to serve on a board or the significant role that a board can play in an organization. I should say that my grandfather was still serving as chair of the board, so he really had a lot of the 
authority with regard to decisions made. And I think he used the board as another source of advice and insight as he considered how to allocate the resources he was giving philanthropically. I remember being intimidated because I had the opportunity to sit at the table with some great minds. But I also remember getting a little window on what it means to have a philanthropic organization and what it means to be thoughtful about how one gives away money. As the next generation comes into leadership of existing philanthropic organizations or new ones that will be created, I see a lot of innovation. And of course, innovation, I think, is just part of what it means to live in the 21st century. But I think there are opportunities to innovate, to use technology, whether that's through fundraising efforts or bringing people together in new ways. I also think that the way in which we go about philanthropy might change. And you see that already where people, at least in the United States, see the private foundation as just one model for giving. But there are other models one can create that allows arguably greater flexibility for the kinds of things that you can support and the way in which you can have impact. In addition, I think more and more people are seeing philanthropy as one way to make a positive impact on the world, but that that can be combined with public partnerships and work with corporations, that there's really a multifaceted effort needed to address some of the world's greatest social challenges. Now, you've been making some significant changes as well at the foundation. We mentioned before Dr. Jane Goodall being awarded this year's Templeton Prize. And I understand that you've been working to develop a much more diverse candidate pool for the prize, increasing the number of women who are participating as judges or nominated for the prize. Can you tell us more about what's driving these shifts and your perspective on the contributions of women to science and philanthropy and social change and how they're shaping our understanding of human flourishing? Well, we are proud to have recognized a number of women throughout the history of the Templeton Prize. The first laureate, the first winner of the Templeton Prize was Mother Teresa. And yet we have recognized fewer women than I would like to have recognized. So there are more and more women like Dr. Jane Goodall, who, of course, was doing a lot of her work in the 20th century, a lot of her initial work, I should say, there are many women who are doing remarkable things. And we've struggled as a Templeton Prize to receive those nominations into the foundation. So we changed the nomination process, as you noted, and we select the nominators. We seek to identify more and more female nominators with the hope to increase that candidate pool when I think about the opportunities for women today, I think about pioneers like Jane Goodall, who had a passion and had a mother who was willing to support that passion. And the two of them went off to Tanzania to study chimpanzees in a way that nobody had ever done before. And because of her curiosity and her humility about what she did or did not know, Jane Goodall was able to share new insights with the world. I also think of my mother, who was a physician, and she pursued medicine, even though many women around her were not pursuing or didn't have similar aspirations. She studied at the University of Rome. She came to the United States to do her training and ended up staying here and really was one of the only women at the time in medicine serving as an anesthesiologist. Today, it's very different. You see more and more women who are 
surgeons and pursuing other kinds of scientific careers. I seek to increase the diversity of the candidate pool for the Templeton Prize because it's a lifetime achievement award. And I think we're at the point where so many women have reached the stage in their career where they've accomplished what is required to receive the Templeton Prize. And I'm really looking forward to who else we can recognize through that prize program. I imagine over the years, you've had the opportunity to meet some incredibly inspiring and inspired leaders. Can you tell us about any one of your interactions that really sticks with you? Yes, I would say this about every leader that I met. And I actually, I have to think about it again in terms of the Templeton Prize, but everyone I've interacted who has received the Templeton Prize is a public figure and they have a public persona. But I interact with them off stage and behind the scenes, off stage, they are just as inspiring as they are on stage. And I think that's actually really encouraging. I don't take that for granted because I'm not sure that's always the case across all leaders out there. I don't know, of course, but in my case, it's been inspiring to see the public and the private persona align. I have really appreciated getting to know Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He passed away last year, unfortunately, but he was the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He promulgated the idea of the dignity of difference. And I really learned from him that people of different faiths need to focus on what they have in common and that they actually have a basis on which to appreciate the commonalities. Because when you look at what we each teach in our scriptures and in our traditions, there's a lot that we, we share in common. I also learned from him the value of friendship. You don't engage across faith traditions by writing or communicating in op-eds or other forums like that. It's actually through friendship. And he modeled that when he was chief rabbi. I think the other person I really appreciated interacting with was Dr. Francis Collins, who received the Templeton Prize in 2020. He's the director of the NIH in the United States, the National Institute of Health. He has led the effort in the United States, along with many colleagues, to fight COVID-19. And he has a profound testimony, both about the relationship of science and spirituality, but also about the important issues of the day, such as climate change and the need to bring greater diversity to the scientific community and to elevate women in their role as well. So all of those aspects of his message was really meaningful to me. His speech at the Templeton Prize ceremony in 2020 was called In Praise of Harmony, and it was about healing our social divisions. Wow. I mean, what an example of the power of a single question <laughs> to drive a reflection and action that comes from it. As you look forward... What are you most excited about and what kind of impact do you hope to achieve in your tenure of president of the John Templeton Foundation? One of our priorities is something that we call intellectual humility. And it's really a disposition which recognizes that our knowledge is limited, that any individual's knowledge is limited, no matter how educated you might be. And an individual's understanding of another perspective is also limited. So we are funding research, we are funding programs to try to understand intellectual humility and to encourage more people to adopt that perspective. And I think it does come down to having a charitable perspective on those with whom you disagree. 
So if we can understand the mechanisms that make intellectual humility possible, then maybe there are interventions, maybe there are approaches that we can take that will encourage friendship across differences. So our research is meant to bring us to that point. In addition to that, we are in regular conversation with many other funders to think about what we can do together. And we're trying to identify specific programs. There are many people engaged in trying to bridge divides, helping to bring people together who come from different walks of life. So I think we need to do more of that. And it's hard and long work because it is fundamentally about interacting with an individual and going person by person but we have to start somewhere. It's extraordinary and very necessary work. And I'm grateful that you have put such an investment into this space. Heather, any last words of wisdom you'd like to leave behind? I think I would like to encourage families out there who are already engaged in philanthropy and are thinking about how to inspire the younger generation to engage with their kids as soon as possible. And I think the best way to do that, honestly, is to give them experiences that help them understand the larger world around them. And that those experiences can come through travel, of course, but I think they come more profoundly through the act of social service. And so I would encourage parents to think about that. It had a profound impact on my life when my father engaged my sister and me in such activities. I'm trying to do the same with my own children. And I know many families at all levels in the socioeconomic spectrum who do the same for their children. I think our sense of serving the other is really important. Thank you. And also, what about for philanthropists, for themselves and, and also perhaps for their families who are just getting started in exploring this space of inner work and understanding its potential for their outer philanthropic work do you have any nuggets of wisdom and advice on how to make that a more explicit path for themselves, how to take those first steps? I would encourage those who have some connection to a religious tradition to explore that religious tradition, to be open to the teachings that come from whatever tradition might have been part of their upbringing, or maybe it's in their heritage some in some way. I think that there are varying degrees of comfort with religion specifically, but I also think there's a lot of strength in religious traditions because the teachings are very clear that we've been given a lot. We have a responsibility to serve the other. And then there are a whole set of practices and communities that encourage reflection on one's purpose and reflection on how to serve others. So that's what I would encourage is to see that as a path to inner work. It's not the only path, but it is a path. Thank you so much, Heather, for your wisdom. Where can people find out more about your work and the work of the John Templeton Foundation? People can learn about the John Templeton Foundation at templeton.org. T-E-M-P-L-E-T-O-N, or also at templetonprize.org. And any other resources you'd love to share about practices, wisdom, or the research that you've been investing in? My grandfather created three philanthropic entities, the John Templeton Foundation, the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and the Templeton Religion Trust. I encourage people to follow us on Twitter because that's where we are posting 
about the most interesting work that our grantees are doing. And you can click on an article, you can click on a link and really engage with some of the cutting edge research that we're funding and what's happening in real time. That's the best resource we have for telling the world about the work that we're doing. Heather, thank you for sharing the profound work that the John Templeton Foundation is doing to help us better understand the universe and our place within it. Thank you, Gretchen. I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you. And I'm just so grateful for the work of our grantees and all that they're doing to make the world a better place. Cultivate the Soul is presented by Synergos, copyright 2021. To learn more, visit Synergos.org and find more episodes at Synergos.org slash podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.